Well, Brooke Ellison's story is well known. In fact, the Brooke Ellison story, a movie based on her memoir, Miracles Happen, was directed by Christopher Reeve. At age 11, she was struck by a car and paralyzed from the neck down. Later, she graduated magna cum laude from Harvard, went on to earn master's and PhD, and is now associate professor of health policy and medical ethics at Stony Brook University. Her latest book, Look Both Ways, continues her personal story while focusing on public policy and her desire to see people with disabilities fully included in society. Welcome to Care Talk, America's home for incisive debate about healthcare business and policy. And although no one has made a movie about us just yet, you can subscribe to the Care Talk newsletter for trending healthcare industry news, highlights of the latest Care Talk podcast episodes, and original blog posts that take a deeper dive into topics covered in your favorite Care Talk episodes. Check it out at caretalkpodcast.com slash newsletter. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the president of Walgreens Health. David, can we please get to the questions in our great guest? Why were you laughing at my intro, John, about the movie? I'm sure somebody would make a movie about you. I'm not sure it would be flattering, but they might make one. All right. All right. Let's get to it. Brooke, welcome to the show and thank you for putting putting up with us. And if you want to sign off right now, because John's not, you know, he's not suitable as a host, you know, we won't we won't object. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be in your company. <laughs> one way, movie or no movie. Brooke, you, you said that fear and hope exist side by side, and you've been explicit about some of your health challenges. How did this help to drive you to write your latest book, Look Both Ways? Thank you so much. Well, thank you, David. Thank you, John, for having me on today. It's an absolute pleasure to talk about uh, parts of my life with both of you uh, and to talk to you more generally. So thank you. That's I think that's a really uh, that's, that's a question that's fundamental to my life and to how I have come to understand the world. So I first studied, started studying hope uh, when I was um, a junior and senior in college, uh, writing my um, undergraduate thesis, honors, honors thesis, and I was studying cognitive neuroscience, so I really wanted to take a scientific kind of biological and cognitive understanding of topics that can seem very amorphous or abstract or like new age or out there. Um, and um, so I wanted to look at how we can conceptualize it, how we can measure it, or look at it as something that's fundamental to our lives. And I've come to understand that that hope is an action-oriented, kind of um, adversity-driven construct. It's not something that is that we simply wish for, that's, that, that's synonymous with optimism. I kind of see them as more abstractions, but hope as something that is driven by the adversity that we face, that we need to be front and have that front and center of of our existence and say, okay, I understand that I have difficulty in my life. I understand that there are things that, that cause complications and then find a way to persevere nonetheless, to find ways to move forward with our lives despite or even sometimes because of the challenges that we face. Sometimes we don't know how hopeful or strong we need to be until we face these kinds of incidents in our lives. And I know that that was the case for me, were it not for the accident that I sustained and the injuries that I've lived with ever since, I don't know if I ever would have been able to live with the, with the sources of strength and the, um, the objectivity of, of resilience that I have 
in my life ever since. And those two things, I think, are really valuable to have to, to know that we can incur difficulty in our lives, but at the same time say, okay, I'm not going to let that define who I am. I'm going to relegate it to the least impactful role that it possibly can can play and find a way to move forward with my life nonetheless. And those two things really don't happen unless they happen side by side. So, Brooke, it sounds like for you, hope is a choice of kind of creating the light in, 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 in difficult circumstances. It sounds like that's a pretty important lesson, not just for folks with disabilities that are profound and, and physical, but 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 life in general is that is that is that where you're going with that? I think that's very much the case. Um, I I have come to understand disability to be um, just one often very obvious and profound manifestation of the kinds of, of challenges that we all experience in our lives. Your challenge is an inevitability in our lives. That's why I think um, I, I had originally. Uh, thought of my book as being applicable to everybody's life, right? It, it is a book um, absolutely about disability and about the kinds of, of um, challenges that I faced living with disability. But at the same time, it, I think it is broadly applicable to people's lives, no matter what kind of adversity they might face, or what kind of um, potentially unexpected deviations their lives may have taken. I think that it's relevant no matter what. I think to the fundamental skill set that is embedded in living life with disabilities, the very same skill set that all of us need to incorporate in our lives if we want to effectively navigate the challenges that we're going to face. Brooke, you've talked about some ill-informed policy decisions that prioritize barriers over isolation, what are you talking about? Well, I, I, the um, Americans with Disabilities Act, you know, was passed in 1990, and that was by far the most profound landmark uh, piece of civil rights legislation for people with disabilities. Right, so so that was critical and important, and certainly my life that I've lived you know, post injury so that for the past 32 years has been under the kind of the aura of the Americans with Disabilities Act. But at the same time, we live in a society that's not will that, that views accessibility almost as an act of compliance, right? As as just an act of, of fulfilling a mandate rather than looking at uh, accessibility as an opportunity, an opportunity to in, to include a greater number of people, to allow people to live with as much opportunity as everybody else. Um, I don't think that the Americans with Disabilities Act goes nearly far enough in, in making sure that people who live with disability can have as full inclusion as everybody else. And I think that, that is that is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about your barriers over inclusion. Uh, I think we still live with a mindset societal mindset that very much needs to be changed when it comes to accessibility and when it comes to full inclusion of the lives of people with disabilities. Um, people with disabilities have a, have a tremendous amount to offer. Right? They live with the very same skills that I think we as a society value when it comes to leadership, whether it is problem solving or creativity or resilience, you know, the ability to have the perseverance to navigate 
a world that is you know, not designed for your needs, right? These are the kinds of skills that I think um, are very much embedded in the lives of people with disabilities, yet we view their lives as less than everybody else's. And that level of inclusion, that level of inclusion, whether it is in the actual built environment or something kind of um, less obvious like inclusion and representation in media is, has just not happened yet. And like, that is the world that I would love to see. That's the world that I'm hoping to create. Do you, do you see Brooke, there, there's a, there's a movement now to be more inclusive of neurodivergent populations there. We've made progress on physical barriers. Do you, do you feel like we're doing a better job as a society at being more open-minded and inclusive or, are we stuck? Because it feels to me as in a, you know, in business, it feels like we're doing better over time, if not meeting the the absolute sort of optimal place where you where you look to your point of leveraging the strengths of everyone, regardless of what position they come from, um, and the creativity. But do you, it, it feels, at least at le- to to my eye, that there we're making progress. Do you feel that's accurate, or or am I overstating I, I what's, what's some, happening? There, right there, now? That is true to to an extent. Yes, I think that there is um, broader acceptance of neurodiversity, and even what that means. Right, the fact that we are even talking about a term like neurodiversity and, and not have that be a, a niche topic, I think is is movement in and of itself. Um, but I think we don't we have not gone far enough to fully understand it. And embrace the talents that that um, people who are neurodiverse have and have to offer. So I have two nephews who are both on the autism spectrum, and you know, they have uh, significant uh, limitations when it comes to, for instance, understanding um, you know, the general education paradigm that education takes today where having a little bit of knowledge in a lot of different areas yeah they are very interested in one isolated area whether it's your technology or computer oriented um uh capacities and given our general education structure you know their talents might not be captured as well as they could be right so there is the potential of having you know changes to education educational curricula that tap into those talents you know, advance and highlight those talents you know, without feeling like we're um, they're at the expense of anything else right those are the I think are the kinds of modifications that can be made to how we approach education or how we approach people's lives that would be very valuable allow them to succeed and allow them to thrive in a way that possibly we haven't really been thinking about before um, and I know that that's the case for others who um, who are neurodivergent or who are on the autism spectrum, you know, allow them to thrive in ways that possibly we haven't thought about yet. Um, disability does not fit into a very particular mold or mindset. And I think that we need to be, as a society, need to be much more open to um, to people's unique ways of life and you know, how we can pot- potentially make changes at the policy or societal levels to accommodate those needs. Brooke, you were talking quite a bit about inclusion before, and John's been talking about diversity, at least neurodiversity. There's this term, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and those three things get put together a lot. And there's some explicit backlash against that as well right now. Um, so when we talk about, you know, moving forward, and at the same time, we hear about, you know, not allowing any funding of DEI or sort of confounding it with the so-called uh, woke, uh, you know, attitude. How do you 
how do you interpret what's what's going on and how do you maybe separate out diversity, equity, and inclusion? Or do you sort of lump it all together as DEI? Yeah, no, I, I think they're three very distinct terms. And I think that the fact that they have been lumped together or viewed in pejorative terms like your wokeness to whatever degree you want to view, view wokeness as, as pejorative, right? I think like that's definitely an avenue of debate in and of itself. But no, those are, are three very different terms. And I think um, the fact that they're almost said as one one kind of continuous stream, you know, stream of consciousness, I think, is unfortunate, right? So your diversity is just kind of who we are, right? The the, um, the level of, or the, is it just a reality of society and living in a, a society where people just come from different backgrounds? So it's kind of diversity is just you know, who we are. It's just a fact of society. It's just a fact of, of having a, a very uh, different and um, eclectic society. Um, equity is kind of recognizing that and recognizing how um, people start from different starting points, right? Given their backgrounds. So some people have, have opportunities and privileges that others just simply do not have. And to not understand that, to not understand that we are starting from different starting points, I think is, is a fundamental error that many people unfortunately make. And then inclusion Right is like what are the the actual strategies that we implement so that people starting from different starting points actually have an equal shot and that I can actually feel like they are uh, you know, valued members of a conversation that's being had around them and about their lives. So in the context of disability as it relates to DEI, you know, unfortunately, I think disability is not as often as it should integrated into the DEI conversations. Actually, you know, there is a push to have accessibility included in that, right? So DEIA, you know, because as far as people with disabilities are concerned, you can't actually have full inclusion without actually having access at the same time, right? So unless you understand all three concepts, unless you understand them to be a a continuum, then you're going to be missing a really critical part of the conversation. So people with disabilities, I think, are far too rarely um, thought of in any of those three, um, especially the inclusion piece, right? Because in order to be inclusive of people with disabilities, you have to think very differently, think, think about our structural environment, our built environment, the kinds of changes we need to make in order to actually make the table an accessible place for somebody with a disability to change our vernacular, to change our language so that we're talking in terms that are not um, objectionable or potentially offensive to somebody who lives with a disability, not feeling like disability is something um, we need to be uncomfortable with. I think that's very often the case. Um, So yeah, so I understand those to be very, very different concepts. So, uh, Brooke, I had a slightly different to take a slightly different direction. It, you, Superman, Christopher Reeve, made a movie about you. Um, what was that? How did he get to that? And 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 what did what 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 uh, what was that like? So, so that era of my life was one of the most um, significant, potentially um, transformative parts of my life. So, um, as you know, I graduated from from Harvard in 2000, and my graduation generated quite a bit of media attention. And um, 
it was shortly after my graduation, the summer of 2000, I was just kind of sitting in my bedroom um, trying to figure out what my next steps were going to be. And I got a phone call um, that sort of came out of nowhere. I was a bit tipped off that it was possibly going to happen um, from his agent saying, I have Christopher Reeve on the line for you. Would you like to patch me, patch you through, which like, how do you turn down? I just say no to that. Like, no, sorry, busy. But, um, so, um, he connected us and he said, you had a bit of a conversation about just kind of similarities in our lives, kinds of challenges we may have experienced. And then he said, you know, I've read about your graduation from Harvard. Um, and in the New York Times, and I think that's you know, quite you know, quite a story, quite impressive. And I've always wanted to tell the story of somebody whose life was similar to my own, but couldn't find the right story to tell, didn't know the right story to tell, and didn't want to tell my own story. Would you mind if I told your story? And you know, like, again, how do you say no to that question either? So I kind of like, you know, <laughs> said, well, let me, let me think about it. Let me talk to some people. I'll get back to you. So he said, um, you know, how about if I came down to your house and we did a working lunch, which was you know, at 21 years old, my very first working lunch. So he and his team, uh, I think it was a nurse and some drivers and the production team all came down to my home. So this is the first time I actually had somebody else in a wheelchair, a wheelchair as large as my own, in my home. So we're kind of like trying to navigate around each other. Um, and we had this long conversation at my kitchen table about you know what this would be like, you know, what a story about my life would be entail. And I said, you know, my, my family and I are in the process of writing a book about um, my the time, the experiences that we had since the time of my accident until my graduation. Um, Ten years later, you could you use that as a model? He said, you know, fantastic. So a teleplay was was um, constructed or adapted from uh, from our, my, our book. And yeah, it was an incredible, incredible experience. Um, so there were some fits and starts as far as um, the production timeline was concerned. Um, 2000, I, this happened in 2000, and then September 11th, 2001 happened, and that kind of shifted everything in terms of timeline. There was a lot of uncertainty about you know, what projects were going to be prioritized as over others. Um, so there was a bit of a wait time before things actually got rolling. It was my second year of graduate school. So all, all the way in 2004, you know, Chris and I stayed in contact for all that time, but then it was 2004 and you know, it was kind of dubious as to whether or not the project was going to come to fruition. Uh, but I got a phone call from Chris again saying, you know, things look like they're back in order. There's um, a lot of interest in the story. Are you still interested in the, in the project? And I said, "Well, yeah, of, of course. Yeah, you know, nothing has changed. Go right ahead." So, so at that point, things sped up considerably. So they did a lot of casting. Actually, um, Lacey Chabert, who played uh, Older Brooke in the in the the film, called my home. So at that point, I was up in up in Cambridge, up at Harvard. She called my home and said, "Yeah, I'm Lacey Chabert. I was just, I was just." cast to play Brooke. Can I come and meet you? So she actually came to my graduation from the Kennedy School, from the Harvard Kennedy School, and that generated some fanfare, so some some excitement for sure. Um, 
And uh, so that summer, the summer of 2004, the Brooke Ellison story was filmed in uh, New Orleans. So my family and I, actually my parents and I drove down from New York, from Long Island, where I am, and we were down there for two weeks. It was a, 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 a total of three weeks, so three days down, and then two weeks on set, and then three days back. And it was such an incredible experience. There was such an outpouring of uh, emotion and love and such a bonding experience. My sister and my brother, uh, they flew down from New York and from Boston, respectively, and they spent uh, a couple of weeks down there with us as well. They got the, the, the freedom of taking <laughs> taking a flight as opposed to driving down. Um, and it was just like, it was such an incredible bonding experience. And um, yeah, so, so it was bloody hot for sure down in New Orleans in the summer, but um, the filming was done. And then the production period was that September and to the beginning of October. And then as I'm sure, you know, Chris passed away in the beginning of October of 2004 and you know, that was quite a you know, quite a blow, quite an emotionally devastating um, experience. There was so much uh, excitement and uh, you know, sense of, of I, I, I don't know, such a sense of emotion surrounding the film, and then to have his his passing associated with it, you know, spun things in a different direction, obviously. Um, I did. I wasn't aware how sick Chris was when he was filming the Brooke Ellison story, but he was um, determined to get it done. Um, you know, in the in the depths of the New Orleans heat, you know, he was being uh, patted down by wet towels and and paper towels, you know, to keep him cool uh, during some of the filming. He had like a he had like a little cave that was set up in almost like a U-Haul where all the technology was and then things to, you know, to keep the production going. So I didn't really fully understand how sick he was until until much later than that. And uh but like I said, he was really determined to to get it completed. Uh yeah, so a lot of the promotion that was supposed to be done by him it fought, fell on my shoulders, and uh, it, it, it created this real bittersweetness to the the film, and it's been broadcast around the world ever since, yeah, to this day. And I get you know, um, email and correspondences from people really all over the world who have been touched by the film, and that really means quite a bit to me. Well, Brooke, John asks all the uplifting questions. I almost feel badly asking a question that's not as good as that one. But I'm going to ask one last question because I know it's something you've talked about and I'm interested in your view about it, which is that, you know, you mentioned before that there's a lot of people that are sort of uneasy or uneasy in the presence of someone with, with disabilities. And I wonder what advice, what advice do you have for someone who may feel uneasy uh, when they're with someone who has a disability? Right. Well, I think people... Um typically associate somebody with a disability with their own vulnerability, right? People want to distance themselves as if there's some kind of contagion associated with disability or like, don't remind me of what my life could, or how terrible my life could be, or keep keep me away. Um, and I think that that is, number one, an unfortunate understanding of disability in and of itself, right? I think we, we tend to per perpetuate this misunderstanding that a life lived with disability is some kind of abysmal, horrible life. And like, God, keep me away from that. But right? I think of that as an unfortunate misunderstanding in and of itself. But on top of that, like, I, I, I think it, um, 
people just need to, to be willing to understand the, the humanity of a life lived with disability and, and, and treat somebody with a disability just like you would anybody else. Not be afraid to befriend them, not be afraid to ask questions. Right? I think some of the, um, the discomfort comes from not knowing the right words to use, not knowing you know, what is appropriate and what is not. So, you know, educate yourself a little bit, right? Take the time to pick up a book about disability. Take a time to pick up, you know, look both ways and, and like learn a little bit about what disability is all about. And um, so, you, so you feel like you're more, you have a greater capacity to talk to somebody and, and understand their lives and to understand the value they might contribute to your own life by virtue of being in it. I think these are all um, evolutions of society can take has not yet taken to its fullest degree but certainly ought to take um i think we need greater representation of people with disabilities in the media in in cinema and on you know the the um smaller screen so that somebody with a disability is not looked at as like an aberration to the to the quote unquote normal way of life whether right? that people with disabilities are as visible as as present in the world as anybody else um to reduce that level of discomfort to promote that level of understanding um, and to just to not view disability as something that we need to be afraid of, but something that is very much a part of the human experience and something that is actually a value. Well, that's it for yet another episode of Care Talk with our guest, Brooke Ellison, professor at Stony Brook University. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the president of Walgreens Health. If you like what you heard or you didn't, please subscribe on your favorite service. And thank you, Professor of Life, Brooke Ellison, for joining us today and sharing your heartfelt insights into how much richer our life could be if we broadened our aperture a little bit and uh, were more inclusive uh, philosophically, structurally, and societally. Thanks, Brooke. Thanks, Brooke.